Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and I'm subbing in for Natasha today. And this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question, and unpack the rest. Today, we are asking how is the economic downturn and startup slowdown impacting VCs and the funds who finance venture capital funds? I'm joined today by Becca Skutek to get into this. Becca, this is essentially Christmas for us because we get to ramble on about LPs and VCs. And finally, our nerd moment has come. Yes, we've been waiting for this for a long time. Yes. If you don't like this particular episode of Equity, tough, because this is the stuff we talk about on Slack and we are bringing it to you today, not live per se, but as close to that as we can get. And a small note, Natasha is just out with a small illness. She will be back. She is not giving up the Wednesday show to me. I just tried to pretend to be her during the intro. She'll be back ASAP. Now, Becca, with that in mind, we're talking about the economic downturn and startup slowdown, which is kind of the same thing. But I want to set the stage here by discussing startups today, because I'm a little confused about where the market is. On one hand, we've had people, you know, ringing the bell of doom that everyone should conserve cash and cut spend and all that business. And at the same time, the venture capital flows into startups seems to be holding up reasonably well. So my vibe is that things aren't as bad as people say they are for startups. But I'm curious, just to set some groundwork here, where you sit. Yeah, definitely. I think the vibe I'm getting is that it's just a really divided market right now. I think some people are doing much better than maybe they would have, say, three years ago in a more stabilized market, and others are just not doing as well as they expected to this year, especially coming off of last year. But I personally think this month may be like the most interesting litmus tests of how things are going. So many people were like, oh, well, these VCs aren't investing here. These VCs are investing there. But they will come like the magical deadline of Labor Day. So I know already on VC Twitter today, there's been multiple posts about people talking about startups being like cautiously putting the toe back in the water for fundraising and such who maybe pause this summer because they just weren't getting much reception. So I think Q3 data, I think, will be the most telling of how things are going. And Q3 wraps up at the end of September. So all the Q3 data that we will eventually see in early October will be inclusive of this period of time. For startups that were delaying, do you think that that was the right move? Do you think that venture capital activity will actually pick back up? Or was that more of a canard that was put forward? You know, that's really hard to tell because I'm sure for some, the strategy will work out. But I have a really hard time believing that VCs were really passing on good companies this summer just out of principle of not investing. So while I think some who maybe chose not to raise but didn't actually go out and try before making that decision may have perfect success now and maybe would have over the summer if they had. So I think, I don't know, I don't necessarily buy that things will just be like a lot better and a lot more rosy just because people waited. Yeah. And you said there's kind of a a have and have not situation that companies are either raising or they're not can or cannot. Have we seen the startups that aren't going to be able to raise deal with that struggle or pain yet? Or is that kind of still to come later in the year when cash supplies dwindle even further? I'm just trying to figure out like, have we seen the bad news or is the bad news for startups that are going to struggle to raise again still coming? I think it's still coming. And I know I was talking with a VC last week and he was telling me that it's really surprising just how many unicorn companies are kind of hanging on a thread right now. And he's like, that's so not apparent if you're not on like the back end side of the conversation. So my feeling on that is there's going to be one big 
maybe not even big, but there's going to be some sort of notable announcement of a company that's just like, we just can't raise anymore, or we have to shut down or in some sort of fire sale. And I think the dominoes will fall pretty quickly from there. And just to be clear, the company in question you're talking about, this theoretical failure or flame out, you're talking about a unicorn. So a company worth a billion dollars or more on paper. So we actually might have out there some relatively wounded companies that look like show horses, but are in effect essentially heading for the glue factory. Absolutely. And I think some of it is true from last year. I know runway and extension financing has been such a big conversation throughout this whole venture funding pullback. But while some of the startups that raised last year, some of the larger companies and the unicorns are overvalued, that doesn't change the fact that they did raise a ton of money. Yes. So it's like, while some of them may appear better on paper for that reason, like, oh, maybe their valuation is too high, but they're still like running business as usual. Some of them are probably not running business as usual. They just did actually in that frenzy last year, raise a pretty good war chest to keep them going for at least a while. Yeah. We kept talking about companies that were raising twice in 12 months, three times in 12 months. And if they spent all that money by now, I have to say, whoops, and also what were they thinking? But there should be a lot of companies out there that do have a lot of cash. And I would say even some companies that are doing less well than others probably are still overcapitalized, just predicated on how easy it was last year to raise 50 or 100 million in a single go. Absolutely. I know of at least one company I covered last year that raised right before the end of 2020 and then raised Mm. twice in 2021. And I remember asking the CEO if they had spent all of the money from the past raise and she said that they hadn't even touched it yet. And then they went on and raised again. So, I mean, that money is sitting in the bank still. I mean, yeah, generating, what is it like, you know, 0.1% interest at whatever rate they can get. (laughs) It reminds me a little bit of when I think it was Airbnb was effectively running like an in-house hedge fund with all their surplus cash because they had to do something with all the money they had that they weren't using. To be clear, I don't think that's particularly common, but things have changed. And now the question is, what is going on from the venture perspective? And a data point that you and I have talked about, and I think that was surprising, was just the sheer amount of money that VCs raised for their own funds in the first half of this year. It was something along the order of like $120 billion, if I recall correctly, a very high and very strong number. Yeah. So it's interesting because I was chatting with PitchBook last week and they were saying that you can tell if you like, when you look at the first half year total, yes, it's crazy high and it sets the year up for like a really strong total overall, but breaking it down quarter by quarter, while the quarters haven't been drastically dropping off, they are heading in that direction. So it's like, it was 70 something in Q1, it was in the forties for Q2. So pretty sizable drop off, but in combination, it still obviously creates like a really strong number for the first half of the year. But Q2 they said was tracking so far to be somewhere in the mid 20s. That could change by the end of this month, obviously. I have a lot of people push to close funds right before the end of the quarter. So I'm sure that will bump up a little bit, but that would show a pretty big drop off, but still puts the year on track to either be the best on record or second best. So essentially 70 billion Q1, 50 billion ish Q2. 25, 30 billion Q3. And that would put us at somewhere in the neighborhood of $5, I think, by the end of the year, if that decline continues. So things have to stabilize at some point. But a downward trend, yeah, man, I just, I wonder if there's a similar effect going on. Some startups raised a bunch of money, still have a bunch of money, regardless of the macro condition. Some VCs raised a bunch of money earlier this year. I wonder if that essentially sets up a strong venture capital cash backlog, if you will, investment backlog. Even if we do see relatively lackluster Q3, Q4 venture capital fund raises. Yeah, no, definitely. That's what makes this such an interesting dynamic, especially because 
with funds having this much cash and some not investing at the same pace or looking to kind of do more concentrated positions, it really does set up this weird dynamic. And I can definitely say from talking with founders for various reasons over the summer, founders definitely have thoughts, opinions, and feelings about being told no because of market conditions by a fund that was just able to raise a ton of money due to market conditions. Right. Due to favorable market conditions, you would presume. You don't raise an outsized VC fund if things are terrible. Also, you know, venture returns have been pretty good the last couple of years. And I know there's a nuance between paper returns and hard cash returns, but based on what you've told me, it seems that venture capital funds have done rather well. So maybe we shouldn't be too surprised that even with a deteriorating macroeconomic picture, VCs are going to be able to set a all-time record in fundraising for themselves this year, despite declines as the calendar kind of rolls along. Mm -hmm. And especially when looking at funds that get backing from institutional investors like pension funds, I mean, those types of investors are across so many different asset classes. And even if venture was to knock off like a significant percentage on its returns, it would still outperform quite a bit of the asset classes that pension funds are investing in, which isn't to say that would necessarily be a good thing. But is that going to be something that's going to cause them to significantly pull back from the industry? It's like, no, what asset class are you going to now pile into that's going to perform better? It's like that asset class still doesn't exist. Well, no, I mean, the stock market's taking, you know, face punches. And if you look at my bond index fund that I have in my Fidelity account, it's roughly the worst thing of all time. So I don't know where you would possibly put capital apart from venture capital funds. Do you think that the slowdown in VC fundraising that we're seeing this year is driven by people that were trying to raise their fund before things got worse? And so they kind of front loaded the year? Or is it more like people are just less interested today in giving VCs money, even if the returns were pretty good? These pension funds, these family offices and so forth. I think it also has a lot to do with the pacing of the market last year because stuff was moving so fast on the VC side, LPs definitely increased their pace as well. So coming into this year where that pressure is just not on anymore, I was talking to a lawyer who focuses on GP fundraising in venture just last week. And she was saying that in her mind, fundraising still seems pretty healthy, but it is absolutely taking funds longer to get to that first close. But she was saying the good indicator of how healthy fundraising is, is the terms in the fundraising. Interesting. And she was like, the terms have not shifted to like the LP's favor. Like GPs definitely still have the upper hand as far as funding terms go right now in these GP LP structures. So she was like, even if stuff is slowing down, there's definitely still enough appetite from LPs that GPs do kind of get that upper hand. Okay. So we talk a lot about founder friendliness when it comes to the founder venture capital relationship and a founder friendly term sheet would include like no ratchet. It would include no dilution protection for investors and would essentially probably keep a lot of the power in the hands of founders, perhaps even giving the founder more votes, et cetera. All that's kind of understood. We've talked about it on the show for years ad nauseum, really. Now, when it comes to terms between an LP and a VC, I'm thinking about things like how much can they charge in uh, management fees and what cut of profits do they get? You know, the two and 20 model has been a rule of thumb for way too long now. I think it's kind of out of date, but what else fits into that LPVC relationship that makes something VC friendly as opposed to LP friendly? I think those two are probably the main drivers for sure. And looking at things like carry and sort of how all of that stuff breaks down, I don't know enough about the capital call structure to know if that would have any impact there, but I'm sure it would. If LPs would want more scrutiny and more time over capital calls, I could see that being something that could come into play if the fundraising environment gets more dicey. But 
that's purely a speculation. I don't have any background on that specifically. Just for folks who are sitting with us and we're tracking so far and then got to capital calls and are confused, what is a capital call? And is it a 1-800 number or something different? <laughs> capital call would be when a GP is looking to use LP capital to invest in a specific transaction or a deal or anything of the like, they have to call on that LP to kind of get the AOK to put that capital toward that specific investment. Usually stuff like that is pretty low key, but some LPs don't invest in certain areas and some have vice clauses or can invest in certain geographies based on sort of internal structure, especially if you get into like government pensions in areas like Canada and the UK. So capital calls are kind of a way for LPs to sort of sign off on their capital being used for the specific investment through the GP's fund structure. And this is because when an LP commits, let's say, $50 million to a $1 billion fund, they don't write a check for $50 million and then send it in. They essentially provide uh, per deal checks, is my understanding. Essentially, the capital is called from them for a particular transaction. And normally... That goes off without a hitch. The VC has the right to kind of call the capital, but with different terms, maybe there is more overview, oversight, and what you might call babysitting, backseat driving, Monday morning quarterbacking. We have a lot of phrases in English for what's going on here, but that is not going to be welcome on the VC side because who the hell wants an advisory board? Yeah. No, and you'll notice the language in a lot of LP documents too. Very few will say they invested in a certain manager. They'll say they committed to a manager. Yeah. And that, that is the distinction right there. Now, one thing you wrote about recently that I thought was very interesting was about venture capital markdowns, because some of the companies that did raise money last year raised it at a price that we now think may have been excessive. And there's been examples of this from Klarna on the private side to, I mean, Affirm on the public side or, you know, Zoom on the public side, or really a bunch of companies that were high flyers that have seen their valuations decline for one reason or the other. And VCs have to decide when to kind of make that apparent on their accounting of their investments. So why are some VCs waiting and what impact does that have on the VC LP relationship? So what I gathered for the main reasons why some VCs may be waiting to mark down the portfolios, on the optimistic side, some may actually think that media attention is negative around XYZ portfolio company or considering most VCs mark to market the fund at the end of each year, they may think, oh, well, we don't know what's going to happen in Q4, especially thinking of this conversation happened a few months ago, like, oh, there's half the year left. Like maybe that won't look overvalued or maybe if I marked it down now, it would end up being too down compared to like what it would look like at the end of the year. So that sort of approach is interesting, and maybe there is some validity for some firms for that, for sure. Another one I heard from an LP was that some early stage portfolios, they just don't really need to do it. Mm. Like maybe you have one company in the portfolio that maybe on paper is a little off now, but is it worth it to go through the whole audit when your companies in your portfolio are still so far away from the public market? It's like that might not end up being a super fruitful exercise. She did say it's always good for GPs to get used to doing this kind of stuff and like having this kind of open LP communication. But some firms may not be doing it because they may be sort of doing a quasi internal review and realizing that like they maybe just don't have to yet, at least. But on the pessimistic side of the table, some (laughs) VCs are avoiding doing it because they're, I don't want to say hiding something because you really. I mean, everyone knows where the market is headed right now. Most of these things probably would not actually be a secret to their LPs, but some are trying to avoid marking down their portfolio, especially if, say, you're a manager trying to raise fund two. 
Yes. I was yeah. about to say, you probably want to have those high multiples. Our TVP DPQ9 is 8.7x versus 4.2. I mean, you look a lot better no matter how real or not the number is. Right. I mean, if this portfolio represents your only track record at the moment, you definitely are not going to be the quickest person to be like, let's make it look worse. Especially <laughs> if you're thinking about fundraising or sort of having those conversations, especially as an emerging manager. But as far as like the big VC funds and everyone I spoke to is like, I'm sure Andreessen's done it. I'm sure Sequoia's done it. Like I'm sure the firms that are so big, it would be laughable not to probably have. But some of those like middle till firms that maybe do have unicorns in the portfolio, but aren't necessarily the funds raising multi-billion dollar vehicles each time they go out. The hesitancy there is, I don't know if they think there is a reason to really justify it. It's kind of like elephant in the room. Yeah. It sounds like. So this is a really interesting thing because we have seen, for example, fintech companies get repriced in the public markets like PayPal, Block. I mentioned a firm earlier, not to pick on them for any particular reason, but we've seen this happen across a lot of companies. So the market that you might mark to is very clearly changed. But when it comes to some sectors like Web3, most of the companies are not yet public. And so we don't have a basket of floating firms that we can kind of track the value of. So if you're a crypto fund and you invest in series A and B Web3 companies with a metaverse focus on, I don't know, digital land or whatever, what the hell are your comps? How do you mark to market in a nascent field like that? I wonder if we're seeing not more honesty per se in certain areas, but like maybe the more traditional and the later stage your portfolio is, the easier it is to be honest versus earlier stage, more esoteric companies having fewer marks. So how do you even tell if you're right? Yeah. No, that's such a good point about especially some of these newer industries. The only thing to counter with that point is that because all these VCs generally do this audit once a year, if they started investing in some of these Web3 metaverse type companies last year, they would have already gone through an audit on them for a mark to market. Mm. So I don't know how those accounting firms break down the value of those companies, but I would imagine because so much of that momentum started last year that these accounting firms would actually be able to kind of work through that. Here's a question that I have. If the market is entirely on the private side and the only data points you have to generate valuations to use as comps come from other VCs, do you essentially end up mark to marketing incorrectly based on having essentially no good comparables? I don't know. I love comps from the public markets because they're so illustrative about where the kind of overall market's headed that it's just so wild to me. I mean, what do you look at? The board ape floor price? For the NFT markets, actual values, I mean, I don't even know. But Andreessen's putting money into a bunch of these companies at, you know, 20 to $50 million per. They, they're basing that based on something. I'm just curious what it is versus, you know, in the old days, the SaaS company, you can just metricize to death. It's the opposite of that. No, that's such a good point, too, because now I am going to be obsessed with that idea. And I now want to know how they do all of this mark to market for all of these really, like you mentioned, still on the private side companies and sectors. Okay, now let's add one more wrinkle to this. The business cycle goes up and down, as you know, everyone knows. And in the traditional economy, which is a weird way of saying the main economy, business cycles have a certain length to them. I don't know, call it 5, 10, 15 years, depending on where we are. In the world of crypto, business cycles are compressed dramatically, and they have crypto summers and winters much more frequently than the business cycle has turns. So what's to stop you from just saying we're not going to mark anything until the crypto winter is over and things look better for us because we think we take a long-term perspective on this part of the economy. And so we're just not going to deal with short-term fluctuations on the valuation side because we think they're noise. Crypto people are believers. For sure. And quite frankly, even though I may not sort of lean into that mindset fully, 
that's a pretty good argument on their behalf of saying, why would we mark down our portfolio when this goes up and down X, Y, and Z? So definitely that's an interesting part of the conversation. But I mean, if you look at a fund that has, say, a fintech unicorn that's laid off 25% of its staff and they're like, no, a company's still valued at the same. Like, I mean, no one really believes that. At yeah, the end no, of the day. no one believes that. It's no longer $7.3 billion for having $1 billion AUM. Sorry. Right. All right. So on the LP side, a couple of things. So there's the possibility that people get more conservative and pull back from exotics, which is the fraction of a capital pool, be it a pension fund or family office that they kind of devote to the venture capital space. You wrote about how there's recommendations against funds doing this. And I'm just curious, driving factors and possible risks of reducing VC exposure amongst these large, rich institutions. Well, I think what's something really interesting about the LP side that sometimes gets lost in similar conversations with VC funds is the fact that, oh, this year the vintage isn't as good because of market conditions. LPs structure their entire portfolio around each asset class eventually having like a bad vintage year or two. Like that is the whole structure of the pacing plan. And that's why they go through all of these things because they have been through multiple market cycles. A lot of these LPs have been investing for say 75 plus year. Well, not all of them, but a lot of the pension funds have been investing for at least like 50, 75 years. They're not expecting venture to continue to go up into the right every year. What's interesting though, is looking at why they wouldn't necessarily stop investing because of it. I think it's interesting point that came up on one of the calls I had is that what's happening right now does not impact the money they would be putting in now. It only impacts the money they've already put in mainly. So it's like, if you sit out now because of what's happening to the money that's already in, you're kind of running in circles there because you're not putting in more money to potentially have a better outcome as things potentially improve or the whole will buy low, sell high. You're literally just basing it off of the fact that your current money isn't going to do as well today. So we're going to put less money into potentially do better. It like when I heard it explained in that way, I thought that was just a really good way of putting it that it's much more of an impact on the money that's already in as opposed to the money you would commit today. And is there a sort of like um Ferrari list factor here? Because I think in the world of buying Ferraris, if you are on the multiple buyers list they have and they release a new car, like let's say they release a special edition, blah, 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 blah. There's only 250 of them. If you have always bought the newest Ferrari, you stay high on the list. But if you skip one, you drop a lot. And I wonder if some LPs are worried that if they don't commit to the next Sequoia fund or whatever, they'll lose their spot essentially on the Sequoia LP cap table. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of validity to that because that generally is what happens. I know we weren't talking about this in particular, but I think it ties in. I know from talking with fund of funds about new fund of funds, that's something they say a lot where they're like, well, current fund of funds do really well because they've had these 15-year relationships or in all these big fund flagships. And it's like, if you were to start as a fund of fund today, sure, of course, I'm not going to lie and say you can't make a great killing doing a good emerging manager strategy, but you're not going to be able to get into those large funds. So it's really hard if you're on the outside. And I think the, from the feeling I've gotten is like, if you step on the outside, you're staying on the outside because someone else will take your spot. And then when they go to raise that next fund... Why would they reach out to you if everyone else is already willing to recommit? Which, quite frankly, kind of makes sense to me. Fundraising is hard and it's time consuming. If you know, oh, well, XY pension fund, they may come in on this fund series, but I know ABC pension fund will definitely come in. Like They have to do time management on their end as well. 
it feels though like the overall tenor of checking in on startups and then VCs and then LPs is that while the market conditions are changing, the game is still going to be going loosely as it has been. And there is no real catastrophic slowdown at any point in kind of the money cascade from large pension funds and similar all the way down to founders. Admittedly, there'll be slight differences in in how money is filtered and where it lands exactly, but the cascade's still happening. Things are still flowing. Absolutely. No, it definitely seems like the top tier level of the money, like the top of the funnel, they're worrying the least. Yeah. So I get why startups are worrying. I get why VC funds are worrying, but it seems like the backing that's coming from the top is, I mean, we don't need to talk about trickle-down economics and if that works or not. But in this structure, that generally is the flow of money. So if the people at the top are the least worried about the conditions right now and are still willing to kind of put money in, it kind of shows that even if this is bad, it really just like can't be that bad for very long because money that backs the industry to run is still like very much coming in. So, you know, interest rates are going up and you and I pay a lot of attention to that sort of data, but the yields on money are still relatively modest compared to the expected returns from a basket of venture capital fund investments. And so to me, they're still much more attractive than anything that you can get out there that's safer. And I know there's supposed to be an inverse relationship between interest rates and more speculative investments, but like, my God, going from one to 2% returns on safe bets versus shooting for a you know 20% IRR or whatever. I mean, it just seems to be still so attractive. I, I guess I'm not that shocked that there's still this much money sloshing its way towards VCs, even though last year was nuts and a lot of money was misspent, if you will. Yeah. And something that I almost never really come across going through pension documents, but that came up on one of the calls I had for the LP story was that one of the consultants I spoke to said, if a fund or from they're working with really did want to say, decrease their venture allocation, because maybe the denominator effects in effect, the venture portfolio now looks overweight because other asset classes have been marked down from the public markets. They can just write a smaller check. I don't know why that's so easy. I don't know why that had never occurred to me because I never see pension funds write smaller checks if they've invested in a larger check prior in the same manager. But he was saying like, that would be advice number one for any fund that's like, oh, I think I need to sort of pull back just a little bit. It'd be like, okay, keep the exact same plan. Just like knock five mil off of each of your commitments and just keep going, get into the same funds, get access to the same returns, but like make the cut there as opposed to an entire fund or entire percentage of investing in the portfolio or anything like that. It's just like make the small, the corner cuts. Yeah. I want to narrow down to a particular segment of the VC market really quickly. Are LPs as excited about backing first-time fund managers as they have been? And by that, I mean, not just actual first time, but, you know, more nascent, more early fund managers. Because we're talking a lot about, you know, CalPERS and other major investment pools. We're talking about major investing firms like Andreessen, Sequoia, et cetera. Those relationships are like the Titanic, very slow to turn around. But more nimble, smaller fund managers have been bubbling up quite frequently. Are are they going to kind of like catch the same tailwinds that we're describing? Or are they distinct enough to not catch the same tailwinds. Yeah. So that's a really interesting area of this because from chatting with the lawyer focused on venture firm fundraising last week, she was saying that she's definitely noticed emerging managers are struggling mm. more so than more established players. But at the same time, this is hopefully for a story later this week as well, but her plus a few other people I spoke to said like, this is actually the best time for first time fund managers and emerging managers to go out and forge these relationships ah. because after last year, so many big funds 
if you raised a multi-billion dollar fund and it closed this year and you're sitting on your hands, yeah, you'll probably start fundraising in a quicker amount of time than I would ever imagine, but you're not doing it this year. So it's like, this is actually the time LPs don't have the pressure from last year and fundraising is actively slowing down. So if you want to get their attention, you want to actually get in front of them and have like a meaningful conversation that could result in something. I spoke to four people who said now is the time. Now could be the best time for first time fund managers. Even if say maybe they don't get that commitment for fund one, starting that relationship now could be good for fund two. They were saying like, this is just a great time for a first time in emerging managers to kind of start making those connections with those LPs who are usually just honestly too busy. Well, huzzah for first-time fund managers and other kind of relatively new VCs. We always hope that the next generation and the upstarts are doing well. That's kind of the whole idea of TechCrunch, I think, as a publication. And that applies to money and startups. Okay, last thing before I let you go. It is YC Demo Day week. When this comes out, it'll be Wednesday morning. And that means that people will be gearing up to watch a kajillion companies and Here's my question. Every year for the last 10,000 years, we've heard VCs complain about YC startup prices. And yet this time, I haven't heard any of that. And I'm curious if things have calmed down enough on the early stage that we're going to have the first ever YC demo day in which VCs do not complain publicly and privately about how much startups cost. Yeah, I don't know. It is so interesting to think about it because usually there's such a big lead up to this day, especially in like the VC Twitterverse. So they're definitely, that has been quiet, but on the same front, is that just because all the other stuff happening with YC, that just like, there's more occupying people's time and sort of like, that's more of the talking point for this round of companies. Cause I don't know. I mean, early stage fundraising is starting to decline, but really not that much. So yeah. I feel like anyone who'd kind of be going and looking to invest at one of these demo days is probably still planning to go and invest. So yeah. Maybe people are hoping the prices will be lower and we'll see sort of that, maybe some of that backlash after if that's not the case could be possible. But no, definitely noticeably quieter this year. Well, to summarize, rich people are still rich. The money is still flowing and the startup slowdown is not as bad as some people thought, at least yet. But we will, of course, come back with Q3 numbers for venture capital fundraises and startup results as soon as we have them. Becca, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to working with you on YC stuff for the next couple of days. And for everyone else out there, we'll be on Twitter spaces here and there in the next couple of days. So equity pod on Twitter if you tweet. Otherwise, we'll talk to you Friday morning. Hugs. Thank you much. Bye.